Violet sat in the window of her bedroom that midsummer morning and disconsolately watched the wagons and carriage carriages full of girls, soldiers, and chaperones ride gaily out Peachtree Road in search of woodland decorations for the bazaar, which was to be held that evening for the benefit of the hospitals. The red road lay checkered in the shade and sun glare beneath the overarching trees and the many hooves kicked up little red clouds of dust. One wagon ahead of the others bore four stout negroes with axes to cut evergreens and drag down the vines, and the back of this wagon was piled high with napkin-covered hampers, split oak baskets of lunch and dozen and a dozen watermelons. Two of the black bucks were equipped with banjo and harmonica, and they are rendering a spirited version of If You Want to Have a Good Time, Join the Cavalry. Behind them streamed the merry cavalcade, girls' cool and flowered cotton dresses with light shawls, bonnets, and mitts to protect their skins and their little parasols held over their heads, elderly ladies placid and smiling amid laughter. In carriage to carriage, calls and jokes, convalescents from the hospitals wedged in between stout chaperones and slender girls who made great fuss and to-do over them. Officers on horseback idling at snail's pace beside the carriages, wheels creaking, spurs jingling, gold braid gleaming, parasols bobbing, fans swishing, negroes singing. Everybody was riding out Peachtree Street to gather greenery and have a picnic and melon cutting. Everybody, thought Scarlet, morosely, except me. They all waved and called to her as they went by, and she tried to respond with a good grace, but it was difficult. A hard little pain had started in her heart and was traveling slowly up toward her throat where it would become a lump, and the lump would soon become tears. Everybody was going to be to the picnic except her, and everybody was going to the bazaar and the ball tonight except her. That is, everybody except her and Pity Pat and Melly, and the other unfortunates in town who were in mourning. But Melly and Pity Pat did not seem to mind. It had not even occurred to them to want to go. It occurred to Scarlet, and she did want to go tremendously. It simply wasn't fair. She had worked twice as hard to any girl in town as any girl in town getting things ready for the bazaar. She had knitted socks and baby caps and afghans and mufflers and tatted yards of lace and painted china hair receivers and mustache cups. And she had embroidered half a dozen sofa pillowcases with a confederate flag on them. The stars were a bit lopsided, to be sure, some of them being almost round and others having six or even seven points, but the effect was good. Yesterday, she had worked until she was worn out in the dusty old barn of um, of an armory draping yellow and pink and green cheesecloth on the booths that lined the walls under the supervision of the ladies' hospital committee. This was plain hard work and no fun at all. It was never fun to be around Mrs. Merriweather and Mrs. Elsing and Mrs. Whitman and have them boss you like you were one of their doggies. I said that weird one of the darkies, and have to listen to them brag about how popular their daughters were. And worst of all, she had burned two blisters on her fingers, helping Pity Pat and Cookie make layer cakes for raffling. And now, having worked with the field hand, like a field hand, she had to retire 
decorously when the fun was just beginning. Oh, it wasn't fair that she should have a dead husband and a baby yelling in the next room and be out of everything that was pleasant. Just a little over a year ago, she was dancing and wearing bright clothes instead of this dark morning and was practically engaged to three boys. She was only 17 now, and there was still a lot of dancing left in her feet. Oh, it wasn't fair. Life was going past her, down a hot, shady summer road. Life with gray uniforms and jingling spurs and flowered organdy dresses and banjos playing. She tried not to smile and wave too enthusiastically to the men she knew best, the ones she'd nursed in the hospital, but it was hard to subdue her dimples, hard to look as though her heart was in the grave when it wasn't. Her bowing and waving were abruptly halted when Pity Pat entered the room, panting as usual from climbing the stairs, and jerked her away from the window unceremoniously. Have you lost your mind, honey? Waving at men out in your bedroom window? I declare, Scarlet, I'm shocked. What would your mother say? Well, they didn't know it was my bedroom. But you suspect it was your bedroom, and that's just as bad. Honey, you mustn't do things like that. Everybody will be talking about you and saying you are fast. And anyway, Mrs. Merriweather knew it was your bedroom. And I suppose she'll tell the boys, the old cat. Honey, hush. Dolly Merriweather's my best friend. Well, she's a cat just the same. Oh, I'm sorry, Auntie. Don't cry. I forgot it was my bedroom window. I won't do it again. I, I, I just wanted to go s- to see them go by. I wish I was going. Honey. Well, I do. I'm so tired of sitting at home. Scarlet, promise me you won't say things like that. People would talk so. They say you don't didn't have the proper respect for poor Charlie. Oh, Auntie, don't cry. And now, if and now I made you cry too. So, Pity Pat, in a pleased way, fumbling in her skirt pocket for the handkerchief. The hard little pain had at last reached Scarlet's throat, and she wailed out loud. Not as Pity Pat thought for poor Charlie, but because the last sounds of the wheels and the laughter were dying away. Melanie. Ru- rustled in from her room, a worried frown puckering her forehead, a brush in her hands, her usually tidy black hair free of its net, fluttering from her face in a mass of tiny curls and waves. Darling, what is the matter? Charlie, sobbed Pity Pat, surrendering utterly to the pleasure of her grief and burying her head on Millie's shoulders. Oh, said Millie, her lip quivering at the mention of her brother's name. Me brave, dear. Don't, don't cry. Oh, Scarlet. Scarlet had thrown herself on the bed and was sobbing at the top of her voice, sobbing for her lost youth and the pleasures of youth that were denied her, sobbing with the indignation and despair of a child who once could get anything she wanted by sobbing and now knows that sobbing can no longer help her. She buried her head in the pillow and cried and kicked her feet at the tufted down her place. I might as well be dead, she sobbed passionately, before such an exhibition of grief. Pity Pat's easy tears ceased, and Mellie flew to the bedside to comfort her sister-in-law. Dear, don't cry. Try to think how much Charlie loved you and let that comfort you. Try to think of your darling baby. Indignation at being misunderstood mingled with scarlet's forlorn feeling of being out of everything and strangled all utterance 
That was fortunate, for if she could have spoken, she would have cried out truth, coach, couched in Gerald's forthright words. Melanie patted her shoulder, and Penny Pat tiptoed heavily about the room, pulling down the shades. Don't do that! shouted Scarlet, raising a red and swollen face from the pillow. I'm not dead enough for you to pull down the shades, though I might as well be. Oh, do go away and leave me alone. She sank her face into the pillow again, and after a whispered conference, the two standing over her tiptoed out. She heard Melanie say to Pity Pat in a low voice as they went down the stairs. Um, Pity, I wish you wouldn't speak of Charles to her. You know how it always affects her. Poor thing. She gets the queer look, and I know she's trying not to cry. You mustn't make it harder for her. Scarlet kicked the coverlet in impotent rage, trying to think of something bad enough to say. God's Nikon, she cried at last, and felt somewhat relieved. How could Melanie be content to stay at home and never have any fun and wear crepe for her brother and when she was only 18 years old? Melanie did not seem to know or care what life was riding by with jingling spurs. But she's such a stick, thought Scarlet, pounding the pillow, and she never was popular like me, so she doesn't miss the things I miss. And and besides, she's got Ashley, and I, I, I haven't got anybody. And at this fresh rose, she broke into renewed crowd cries. She remained gloomily in her room until afternoon, and then the sight of the returning pickaners with wagons piled high with pine bows vines and ferns did not cheer her everyone looked happily tired as they waved to her again and she returned their greetings drearily life was a hopeless affair and certainly not worth living deliverance came in the form she least expected when during the afternoon hour after dinner nap period mrs merriweather and mrs elsing drove up scarlet at having callers at such an hour Wait, startled, not Scarlet, startled at having callers at such an hour, Melanie Scarlet and Aunt Pitypat roused themselves, hastily hooked their bosks, smoothed their hair, and descended to the parlor. Mrs. Bonal's children have the measles, said Mrs. Merriweather, abruptly, showing plainly that she held Mrs. Bonal personally responsible for permitting such a thing to happen. And the McCarroll girls have been called to Virginia. I don't know why I changed that. Whatever. It said Mrs. Elsing in her dire way voice, fanning herself languidly as if neither this nor anything has mattered very much. Dallas McCarroll is wounded. How dreadful, chorused the hostesses. Is poor Dallas? No, just through the shoulder, said Mrs. Merrill briskly. But it couldn't possibly have happened at a worse time. The girls are going north to bring him home, but skies above, we haven't time to sit here talking. We must hurry back to the armory and out get the decorating done. Pity, we need you and Melly tonight to take Mrs. Bonnell's and the Milkars' pearls places. Oh, but Dolly, we can't go. Don't say can't to me, Pity Pat Hamilton, said Mrs. Merriweather vigorously. We need you to watch the darkies with the refreshments. That was what Mrs. Bernal was to you, and Melly, you must take the McClure girl's booth. Oh, we couldn't, with poor Charlie dead, only a... I know how you feel about... Oh, wait, wait. I, I don't remember what I did for her. I know how you feel about 
but there isn't any sacrifice too great for the cause, broke up Mrs. Elsing in a soft voice that settled matters. Oh, we'd love to help, but why can't you get some sweet, pretty girls to take the booths? Mrs. Merriweather snorted in trumpeting snort. I don't know what's coming over the young people these days. They have no sense of responsibility. All the girls who haven't already taken booths have more excuses than you could shake a stick at. Oh, they don't fool me. They just don't want to be hampered in making up to the officers, that's all. And they're afraid their new dresses won't show off behind booth counters. I wish to goodness that blockhead runner, what's his name? Captain Butler, supplied Mrs. Elsing. I wish he'd bring in more hospital supplies and less hoop skirts and lace. If I'd had to look at one dress today, I'd had to look at 20 dresses that he ran in. Captain Butler, I'm sick of the name. Now, pity, I haven't time to argue. You must come. Everybody will understand. Nobody will see you in the back room anyway, and Melly won't be conspicuous. The poor McClure girls, Booth, away down at the end. Not very pretty, so nobody will notice you. I think we should go said Scarlet, trying to curb her eagerness and to keep her face earnest and simple. It is the least we can do for the hospital. Neither of the visiting ladies had even mentioned her name, and they turned and looked sharply at her. Even in their extremity, they had not considered asking a widow of scarcely a year to appear at a social function. Scarlet bore their gaze with a wide-eyed childlike expression. I think we should go and help to make it a success, all of us. I think I should go in the booth with Melly because, well, I think it would look better for us both to be there instead of just one. Don't you think so, Melly? Well, began Melly helplessly. The idea of appearing publicly at social gathering while in mourning was so unheard of she was bewildered. Scarlet's right, said Mrs. Merriweather, observing signs of weakening. She rose and jerked her hoops into place. Both of you, all of you cost come. Now, pity, don't start your excuses again. Just think how much the hospital needs money for new beds and drugs. And I know Charlie would like you to help the cause he died for. Well, said Pity Pat, helpless as always in the presence of a stronger personality. If you think people will understand. Too good to be true. Too good to be true, said Scarlet joyful high as she slipped on obtrusively into the pink and yellow drap booth that was to have been the McClure's girls. Actually, she was at a party. After years, after years seclusion, after crepe and hushed voices and nearly going crazy with boredom, she was actually at a party. The biggest party Atlanta had ever seen. And she could see people and many lights and hear music and view for herself the lovely laces and frocks and frills that the famous Captain Butler had run through the blockade on his last trip. She sank down on one of the little stools behind the counter of the booth and looked up and down the long hall, which, until this afternoon, had been a bare and ugly drill room. How the ladies must have worked today to bring it to its pleasant, present beauty. It looked lovely. Every candle and candlestick in Atlanta must be in this hall tonight, she thought. Silver wands with a dozen sprangly arms. China wands with charming figurines clustering their bases. 
Old brass stands, erect and dignified, laden with candles of all sizes and colors, smelling fragrantly of bayberries, standing on the gun racks that ran the length of the hall, on the long floor decked tables, on booth counters, even on the sills of the open windows where the draughts of warm summer air was strong enough to make them flare. Huh, rams. In the center of the hall, the huge, ugly lamp, hanging from the ceiling by rusty chains, was completely transformed by twining, twining ivy and wild grape vines that were already withering from the heat. The walls were banked with pine branches that gave out a spicy smell, making the corners of the room into pretty bows where the chaperones and old ladies would sit. Long, graceful ropes of ivy and grapevine and simax were hung everywhere in looping festoons on the walls, draped above the windows, twined in scallops all over the brightly colored cheesecloth booths, and everywhere amid the greenery on flags and bunting blazed the bright stars of the Confederacy on the black gown of red and blue. The raised platform for the musicians was especially artistic. It was completely hidden from view by the banked greenery and starry bunting, and Scarlet knew that every potted and tumped tub plant in town was there. Colas, geranium, hydrangea, alander, elephant ear, even Mrs. Elsing's four treasured rubber plants, which were given pots, posts of honor at the four corners. At the other end of the hall, from the platform, the ladies had eclipsed themselves, on this wall hung large pictures of President Davis and George's own little Alec Stevens, Vice President of the Cal Confederacy. Above them was an enormous flag, and beneath, on long tables, was the loot of the gardens of the town, ferns, banks of roses, crimson and yellow and white, proud sheaves of golden gla gladioli. Masses of vari-colored nasturtiums, tall, stiff hollyhocks, rearing deep maroon and creamy heads above the other flowers. Among them, candles burned serenely like altar fires. The two faces looked down on the scene, two faces as different as could be possible in two men at the helm so, of so monumentous an undertaking. Davis, with the flat cheeks and cold eyes of an aesthetic, aesthetic, his thin, proud lips set firmly. Stephen, with dark, burning eyes, deep-socketed in a face that had known nothing but sickness and pain, and had triumphed over them with humor and with fire, two faces that were greatly loved. The elderly ladies of the committee, in whose hands rested the responsibility for the whole bazaar, wrestled in as importantly as full-rigged ships, hurried the belated young matrons and giggling girls into their booths, and then swept through the tours into the back rooms where the freshmen were being laid out. Aunt Petty pant panted out after them. The musicians clambered upon their platform, black grinning, their fat cheeks, already shining with perspiration and began tuning their fiddles and sawing and wanging it with their bows and anticipatory importance. 
old Levi, Mrs. Merriweather's coachman, who had led the orchestras for every bazaar, ball, and wedding since Atlanta was named Marthersville, rapped with his bow for attention. Few, except the ladies who were conducting the bazaar, had arrived yet, but all eyes turned toward him. Then the fiddles, bull fiddles, accordions, banjos, and knucklebones broke into a slow rendition of a Lorena. Too slow for dancing, the dancing would come later when the booths were emptied of their wares. Scarlet felt her heart beat faster. The sweet melancholy of the waltz came to her. The years creep slowly by the arena. The snow is on the grass again. The sun's far down the sky, Lorena. No idea if that's the actual music. One, two, three, one, two, three, dip, sway, three, turn, two, three. What a beautiful waltz. She extended her hands slightly, closed her eyes, and swayed with a sad, haunting rhythm. There was something about the tragic melody and Lorena's lost love that mingled with her own excitement and brought a lump into her throat. Then, as if brought into being by the waltz music, sounds floated in from the shadowy moonlit street below. The trample of horses' hooves and the sound of carriage wheels, laughter on the warm, sweet air, and the soft acrimony of negro voices raised an argument over hitching places up for the horses. There was confusions on the stairs and light-hearted merriment, the mingling of girls' fresh greeting and squeals of joy as girls recognized friends from whom they had parted only that afternoon. Suddenly, the hall burst into life. It was full of girls, girls who floated in butterfly dresses, hooped out enormously, lace pantalets, peeping from beneath, round little white shoulders bare, and faintest traces of soft little bosoms, 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 showing above lace flounces, lace shawls carelessly hanging from arms, fans spangled and painted, fans of swan's down and peacock feathers dangling at wrists by the tiny velvet ribbons, girls with masses of golden curls about their necks, and fringed gold ear bobs that tossed and danced with their dancing curls, laces and silks and braids and ribbons, all blockade run, all the more precious and more proudly worn because of it. Finery, vi- finery flaunted with an added pride as an extra affront to the Yankees. Now all the flowers of the town were standing in triumph to the leaders of the Confederacy. The smallest, the most fragrant fl- blossoms bedecked the girls. Tea roses tucked behind pink ears, cape jessamine and bud roses and round Little garlands over cascades of side curls, blossoms thrust sternly into satin sashes, flowers that before the night was over would find their way into the breast pockets of gray uniforms as treasured souvenirs. There were so many uniforms in the crowd, so many uniforms on so many men whom Scarlet knew, men she had met on hospital cots, on the streets, at the drill ground. They were such respite resplendent uniforms brave with shining buttons and dazzling with twine gold braid on cuffs and collars the red and yellow and blue stripes on the trousers for their different branches of the service setting off the gray to perfection scarlet and gold sashes swung to and fro 
Sabres glittered and banged against swinging boots, shining boots. Spurs rattled and jingled. Such handsome men, thought Scarlet, with a swell of pride in her heart. As the men called greetings, waved to friends, bent low over the hands of elderly ladies. All of them were so young-looking, even with their sweeping yellow mustaches and full black and brown beards, so handsome, so breathless, with their arms in slings, with head bandages startling white across sun-brown faces. Some of them were on crutches, and how proud were the girls who solicitously slowed their steps to their escort's hopping pace. There was one gaudy splash of color among the uniforms that put the girls' bright finery to shame and stood on the crowd like a tropical board. Bird, a Louisiana suva with baggy blue and white striped pants, cream gaiters, and tight little red jacket. A dark, grinning little monkey of a man with his arm in black silk sling. He was Maybelle Merriweather's especial beau, Renard Picard. <laughs> Rene Picard. The whole hospital must have turned on, turned out, at least everybody who could walk, and all the men on furlough and sick leave. And all the railroad and mail service, hospital and misery departments between here and Macon. How pleasant the ladies would be. The hospital should make a mint of money tonight. There was a ruffle of drums from the street below. The tramp of feet. The admiring cries of coachmen. A bugle blared and a bass voice shouted the command to break ranks. In a moment, the home guard and the militia unit in their bright uniforms stood the narrow stairs and crowded into the room bowing saluting shaking hands there were boys in the home guard proud to be playing at the war promising themselves it would be in virginia this time next year if the war would just last that long old men with white beards wishing they were younger proud to march in uniform in the reflected glory of suns at the front in the militia there were many middle-aged men and some older men but there was a fair sprinkling of men of military age who did not carry themselves quite so jauntily as their elders or their juniors. Already people were beginning to whisper, asking why they were not with Lee. How would they all get into the hall? It had seemed such a large place a few minutes ago. But now it was packed, warm with summer night odors of sach- sachet and cologne water and hair pomade and burning bay bayberry candles fragrant with flowers faintly dusty as many feet trod the old drill floors the din and hubbub of voices made it almost impossible to hear anything and as if feeling the joy and excitement of the occasion old levi choked off lorena in midbar wrapped sharply with his bow and swaying sawing away for dear life the orchestra burst into Bonnie Blue Flag. A hundred voices took it up, sang it, shouted it like a cheer. The home guard bugler climbing onto the platform caught up with the music just as the chorus began, and the high silver notes soared out thrillingly above the mass singing, causing goosebumps to break out on bare arms and cold chills of deeply felt emotion to flag upon. Hooray! Hooray for the Southern rights! Hooray! Hooray for the bonnie, I don't know, black flag that bears a single star. I don't know how to sing that one. (laughs) 
They crashed into the second verse, and Scarlet, singing with the rest, heard the high, sweet soprano of Melanie mounting behind her, clear and true and thrilling as a bugle notes. Turning, she saw that Melly was standing with her hands clasped to her breast, her eyes closed, and tiny tears oozing in the corners. She smiled at Scarlet whimsically. As the music ended, making a little moo of apology as she dabbed with her handkerchief. I'm so happy, she whispered, and so proud of the soldiers that I just can't help crying about it. There was a deep, almost fanatic glow in her eyes that for a moment lit up her plain little face and made it beautiful. The same look was on the faces of all the women as the song ended. Tears of pride on cheeks, pink or wrinkled, smiles on lips, a deep, hot glow in eyes as they turned to the men, sweetheart to lover, mother to son, wife to husband. They were all beautiful with the blinding beauty that transfigures even the plainest woman when she is utterly protected, utterly loved, and is giving back that love a thousandfold. They loved their men. They believed in them. They trusted them to the last breaths of their bodies. How could disaster ever come to women such as they when their stalwart gray line stood between them and the Yankees? Had there ever been such men as these since the first dawn of the world, so heroic, so reckless, so gallant, so tender? How could anything but overwhelming victory come to a cause as just and right as theirs, a cause they loved as much as they loved their men, a cause they served with their hands and their hearts, a cause they talked about, thought about, dreamed about, a cause to which they would sacrifice those men if need be and bear their loss as proudly as the men bore their battle flags. It was high tide of devotion and pride in their hearts, high tide of the Confederacy for their for final victory was at hand. Stonewall Jackson's triumphs in the valley and the defeat of the Yankees in the seven days battle around Richmond showed that clearly. How could it be otherwise? Richmond showed oh, with such leaders as Lee and Jackson. One more victory and the Yankees would be on their knees yelling for peace. And then when men would be riding home and there would be kissing and laughter. One more victory and the war was over. Of course... There were empty chairs and babies who would never see their father's faces in unmarked graves by lonely Virginia cricks and in the still mountains of Tennessee. But was that too great a price to pay for such a cause? Silks for the ladies and tea and sugar were hard to get, but that was something to joke about. Besides, the dashing blockade runners were bringing in these very things on the Yankees' disgruntled noses. And that made the possession of them many times more thrilling. Soon, Raphael seems and the Confederate Navy would tend to those Yankee gunboats and the ports would be wide open. And England was coming in to help the Confederacy win the war because the English mills were standing idle for want of southern cotton. And naturally, the British aristocrats, I can never say this word, aristocracy, <laughs> uh, that's not how you say it, okay, whatever. Um, sympathized with the Confederacy as one aristocrat with another against a race of dollar lovers like the Yankees. So the women swished their silks and laughed and looking on their men and hearts bursting with pride, they knew that love snatched in the face of danger and death was doubly sweet for the strange excitement that went with it. When first she looked at the crowd, Scarlet's heart had thump-thumped 
with the unaccustomed excitement of being at a party, but as she half comprehendingly saw the light-hearted look on their faces about her, her joy began to evaporate. Every woman present was blazing with an emotion she did not feel. It bewildered and depressed her. Somehow, the hall did not seem so pretty, nor the girl so dashing, and the white heat of devotion to the cause that was still shining on every face seemed... Why, it just seemed silly. In a sudden flash of self-knowledge that made her mouth pop open with astonishment, she realized that she did not share with these women their fierce pride, their desire to sacrifice themselves and everything they had for the cause. Before horror made her think, no, no, I mustn't think such things. They're wrong, sinful. She knew the cause meant nothing at all to her, and that she was bored with hearing other people talk about it with that fanatic look in their eyes. The cause didn't seem sacred to her. The war didn't seem to be wholly a fair, but a nuisance that killed men senselessly and cost money and made luxuries hard to get. She saw that she was tired of the endless knitting and the endless bandage rolling and lint picking that roughened the critical of her nails. And all she was so tired of the hospital. Tired and bored and nauseated with the sickening gangrene smells, the endless moaning, frightened by the look that coming death gave to sunken faces. She looked furtively around her as the treacherous, blasphemous thoughts rushed through her mind, fearful that someone might find them written clearly upon her face. Oh, why couldn't she feel like... (coughs) Sorry. Oh, why couldn't she feel like those other women? They were wholehearted and sincere in their devotion to the cause. They really meant everything they said and did. And if anyone should ever suspect that she... No, no one must ever know. She must go on making a pretense of enthusiasm and pride in the cause, which she could not feel, acting out her part of the widow of the Confederate officer who bears her grief bravely, whose heart is in the grave, who feels that her husband's death meant nothing if it aided the cause to triumph. Oh, why was she different apart from these loving women? She could never love anything or anyone so selfishly as they did. What a lonely feeling it was, and she had never been lonely either in body or spirit before. At first, she tried to stifle the thoughts, but the hard self-honesty that lay at the base of her nature would not permit it, And so, while the bazaar went on, while she and Melanie waited on the customers who came to their booth, her mind was busily working, trying to justify herself to herself, a task which she seldom found difficult. The other women were simply silly and hysterical with their talk of patriotism in the cause, and the men were almost as bad with their talk of vital issues and states' rights. She, Scarlett O'Hara Hamilton, alone had good, hard-headed Irish sense. She wasn't going to make a fool out of herself about the cause, but neither was she going to make a fool out of herself by admitting her true feelings. She was hard-headed enough to be practical about the situation, and no one would ever know how she felt. How surprised the bazaar would be if they knew what she really was thinking. How shocked if she suddenly climbed on the bandstand and declared that she thought the war ought to stop so everybody could go home and tend to their cotton and there could be parties and bow again, and plenty of pale green dresses. For a moment, she self-justif- her self-justification buoyed her up, but still she looked about the hall with distaste. 
The McClure girls' booth was inconspicuous, as Mrs. Merriweather had said, and there were long intervals when no one came to their corner, and Scarlet had nothing to do but look enviously on the happy throng. Melanie sensed her moodiness, but crediting it to longing for Charlie, did not try to engage her in conversation. She busied herself arranging the articles in the booth in more attractive display, while Scarlet sat and looked glumly around the room. Even the bunked flowers below the picture of Mr. Davis and Mr. Stevens displeased her. It looks like an altar, she sniffed. And the way they all carry about these two, they might as well be father and son. Then smitten with sudden fright at her irreverence, she began hastily cross herself by way of apology, but caught herself in time. Well, it's true, she argued with her in conscience. Everybody carries on like they're holy and they aren't anything but men and mighty unattractive looking ones at that. Of course, Mr. Stevens couldn't help how he looked, for he had been an invalid all his life, but Mr. Davis? She looked up at the cameo, clean, proud face. It was his goatee that annoyed her the most. Men should either be clean-shaven, mustache, or wear full beards. That little wisp looks like it was just the best he could do, she thought. And seeing in his face the cold, hard intelligence that was carrying the weight of a new nation. No, she was not happy now, and at first she had been radiant with the pleasure of being in the crowd. Now just being present was not enough. She was at the bazaar, but not a part of it. No one paid her any attention, and she was the only young unmarried woman present who did not have a bow. And all her life, she had enjoyed the center of the stage. It wasn't fair. She was 17 years old, and her feet were patting on the floor, wanting to skip and dance. She was 17 years old, and she had a husband lying in Oak Land Cemetery and a baby in his cradle at, the Aunt, at Aunt Petty Pat's, and everyone thought she should be content with her lot. She had a wider blossom and a smaller waist and a tinier foot than any girl present. But for all they mattered, she might just as well be lying beside Charles with beloved wife of carved over her. She wasn't a girl who could dance and flirt, and she wasn't a wife who could sit with other wives and criticize the dancing and flirting girls. And she wasn't old enough to be a widow. Widows should be old, so terribly old, they didn't want to dance and flirt and be admired. Oh, it wasn't fair, and she should have to sit there sit here primly and be the acme of widow dignity and property propriety when she was only 17 it wasn't fair and she must keep her voice low and her eyes cast modestly down when men attractive ones too came to their booth every girl in atlanta was three deep in men even the plainest girls were carrying on like bells and oh, worst of all, they were carrying on in such lovely, lovely dresses. Here she sat like a crow with her hot black taffeta to her wrists and buttoned up to her chin without even a hint of lace or braid, not a jewel except Ellen's onyx morning brooch, watching tacky-looking girls hanging on the arms of the good-looking men, all because Charles Hamilton had had the measles. He didn't even die in fine glow of gallantry in battle, so she could brag about him. Rebelliously, she leaned her elbows on the counter and looked at the crowd, flouting Mammy's oft-repeated admonition against leaning on elbows and making them ugly and wrinkled. What did it matter if they get ugly? She'd probably never get a chance to show them again. 
She looked hungrily at the frocks floating by. Butter yellow, watered silk with garlands and rosebuds, pink satins with 18 flounces edged with tiny black velvet ribbons, baby blue taffeta, 10 yards in the skirt and fauz, and foamy with cascading lace, exposed bosom, bosoms, seductive flowers. Maybelle Merriweather went toward the next booth on the arm of the Zoav in the apple green tarlatan so wide that it reduced her waist to nothingness. It was showered and flounced with cream-colored chantilly lace that had come from Charleston on the last blockader, and Maybelle was flaunting it as saucily as if she and not the famous Captain Butler had run the blockade. How sweet I look in that dress, thought Scarlet, a savage envy in her heart. Her waist is as big as a cow's. That green is just my color, and it would make my eyes look... Why will blondes try to wear that color? Her skin looks as green as an old cheese, and to think I'll never wear that color again, not even when I do get out of mourning. No, not even if I do manage to get married again. Then I'll have to wear tacky old grays and tans and lilacs. For a brief moment, she considered the unfairness of it all. How short was the time for fun, for pretty clothes, for dancing, for coquetting? Only a few, too few years. Then you married and wore dull-colored dresses and had babies that ruined your waistline and sat in corners at dance at dances with other sober matrons and only emerged to dance with your husband or with old gentlemen who stepped on your feet. If you didn't do these things, the other matrons talked about you and then your reputation was ruined and your family disgraced. It seems such a terrible waste to spend all your little girlhood learning how to be attractive and how to catch men and then only use the knowledge for a year or two. When she considered her training at the hands of Ellen and Mammy, she knew it had been thorough and good because it had always reaped results. There were set rules to be followed, and if you followed them, success crowned your efforts. Crowned your efforts. With old ladies, you were sweet and guileless and appeared as simple-minded as possible, for old ladies were sharp and they watched girls as jealously as cats, ready to pounce on any indiscretion of tongue or eye, with old gentlemen, a girl was pert and saucy and almost, but not quite, flirtatious, so that the old fool's vanities would be tickled. It made them feel devilish and young, and they pinched your cheek and declared you were a minx. And, of course, you always blushed on such occasions. Otherwise, they would pinch you with more pleasure than was proper, and then tell their sons that you were fast. With young girls and young married women, you slopped over with sugar and kissed them, Every time you met them, even if it was ten times a day, and you put your arms about their waists and suffered them to do the same to you, no matter how much you disliked it, you admired their frocks on their, or their babies indiscriminately and teased about beaux and complimented husbands and giggled modestly and denied that you had any charms at all compared with theirs. And above all, you never said that you really thought about anything. And more than that, more than they said what they really thought. Any more than they said what they really thought. Other women's husbands you let severely alone, even if they were your own discarded beau. And no matter how temptingly attractive they were, if you were too nice to young husbands, 
The wives said you were fast and you get a bad reputation and never caught any bows of your own. But with young bachelors, ah, that was a different matter. You could laugh softly at them, and when they came flying to see why you laughed, you could refuse to tell them and laugh harder and keep them around indefinitely trying to find out. You could promise with your eyes any number of exciting things that would make a man maneuver to get you alone. And, having gotten you alone, you could be very, very hurt or very, very angry when he tried to kiss you. You can make him apologize for being a cur and forgive him so sweetly that he would hang around trying to kiss you a second time. Sometimes, but not often, you did let them, him kiss you. Ellen and Mammy had not taught her that, but she learned it was effective. Then you cried and declared you didn't know what had come over you and that he couldn't ever respect you again. Then he had to dry your eyes and usually he proposed to show just how much he did respect you. And then there were, oh, how much she did respect you to do, oh, how, oh, wait, hold on. And then there were, oh, there were so many things to do to bachelors, and she knew them all. The nuance of the sidelong glance, the half smile behind the fan, the swaying of the hips so that skirts swung like a bell, the tears, the laughter, the flattery, the sweet sympathy, oh, all the tricks that never failed to work except with Ashley. No, it didn't seem right to learn all these smart tricks, use them so briefly, and then put them away forever. How wonderful it would be never to marry, but to go on being lovely in pale green dresses and forever courted by handsome men. But if you went on too long, you got to be an old maid like India Wilkes. And everyone said, poor thing, in that smug, hateful way. No, after all, it was better to marry and keep your self-respect, even if you never had any more fun. What a mess life was. Why had she been such an idiot to marry Charles of all people and have her life end at 16? Her indignant and hopeless reverie was broken when the crowd began pushing back against the walls, the ladies carefully holding their hoops so that no careless contact should turn them up against their bodies and show more pantalets than was proper. Scarlet tiptoed above the crowd and saw the captain of the militia mounting the orchestra platform. He shouted orders and half the com- company fell into line. For a few minutes, they went through a brisk drill that brought perspiration to their foreheads and cheers and applause from the audience. Scarlet clapped her hands dutifully with the rest, and as the soldiers pushed forward toward the punch and lemonade both. After they were dismissed, she turned to Melanie, feeling that she had better begin her deception about the cause as soon as possible. They looked fine, didn't they? She said. Melanie was fussing about with the knitted things on the counter. Most of them look, would look a lot finer in gray uniforms than in Virginia, she said, and she did not trouble to lower her voice. Several of the proud mothers and chambers of the militia were standing close by and overheard the remark. Mrs. Goodman turned scarlet and then white, and for for her 25-year-old Willie was in the company. Scarlet was aghast at such words coming from Melanie of all people. Why, Melanie? You know it's true, Scarlet. I don't mean the little boys and the old gentlemen, but a lot of the militia use perfectly able to tote a rifle, and that's what they ought to be 
doing this minute. But, but, began Scarlet, who had never considered the matter before. Somebody's got to stay home to... What was it Willie Gillen had told her by way of excusing his presence in Atlanta? Somebody's got to stay home to protect the state from evasion. Nobody's invading us, and nobody's going to, said Melly coolly. Looking toward the group of militia, and the best way to get out invaders is to go to Virginia and beat the Yankees there. And for all this talk about the militia staying here to keep the darkies from rising, while it's the silliest thing I ever heard, why should our people rise? It's just a good excuse for cowards. I'll bet we could lick the Yankees in a month if all the militia of all the states went to Virginia. So there. Why, Millie, cried Scarlet again, stirring. Millie's soft, dark eyes were flashing angrily. My husband wasn't af- afraid to go, and neither was yours. And I'd rather they'd both be dead than here at home. Oh, darling, I'm sorry. How thoughtless and cruel of me. She stroked Scarlet's arm appealingly, and Scarlet stared at her. But it was not of dead Charles, she was thinking. It was of Ashley. Suppose he, too, were to die. She turned quickly and smiled automatically as Dr. Mead walked up to their booth. Well, girls, he greeted them. It was nice of you to come. I know what a sacrifice it must have been for you to come out tonight, but it's all for the cause. And I'm going to tell you a secret. I'm a... I have a surprise way for making some more money tonight for the hospital, but I'm afraid some of the ladies are going to be shocked by it. He stopped and chuckled as he tugged at his gray goatee. Oh, what? Do tell. On second thought, I believe I've keep you guessing too, but you girls must stand up for me and the church members want to run me out of town for doing it. However, it's for a hospital. You'll see. Nothing like this has ever been done before. He went off pompously um, toward a group of chaperones in one corner, and just as the two girls had turned to each other to discuss the possibility of the secret, two old gentlemen bore down the booth, declaring in loud voices that they wanted ten miles of tatting. Well, after all, old gentlemen were better than no gentlemen at all, thought Scarlet, measuring out the tatty and submitting and demurely to being chucked under the chin. The old blades charged off toward the lemonade booth, and others took their places at the counter. They both did not have to... Uh, their booth did not have so many customers as did the other booths where the twiddling laugh of Mabel Merriweather sounded and Fanny Elsing's giggles... Giggies. No, it's the giggles. And went and girls... Reparte made merriment. Melly sold useless stuff to men who could have no possible use for it as quietly and serenely as a shopkeeper, and Scarlet patterned her conduct on Melly's. There were crowds in front of every other counter about theirs. Girls chattering, men buying. The few who came to them talked about how they went to the university with Ashley, what a fine soldier he was, or spoke in respectful tones of Charles and how great a loss to Atlanta his death had been. Then the music broke into the rocketer strain of Johnny Booker helped this, what rhymes with Booker that starts with an N, and Scarlet thought 
actually, it doesn't really rhyme with that. Why would you? Whatever. Um, she would, she would, uh, and Scarlet thought she would scream. She wanted to dance. She wanted to dance. She <laughs> literally is such a choice. She looked across the floor and tapped her foot to the music, and her green eyes blazed so eagerly that they fairly snapped. All the ways across the floor, a man newly come and standing in the doorway saw them, started in recognition, and watched closely the slanting eyes and the sul- sulky, rebellious face. Then he grinned to himself as he recognized the invitation that any male could read. He was dressed in black bro- broadcloth, a tall man, towering over the officers who stood near him, bulky in the shoulders but tapering, tapering to a small waist and absurdly small feet and vanished boots. His severe black suit with fine ruffled shirt and trousers smartly strapped beneath high insteps was oddly at variance with his physique and face, for he was foppishly groomed and the clothes of a dainty on a body that was powerful and lately dangerous in its lazy body and lazy grace. His hair was jet black and his black mustache was small and closely clipped, almost foreign-looking compared with the dashing, swooping mustaches of the Calvary men nearby. He looked and was a man of lusty and unashamed appetites. He had an air of utter assurance of displeasing insolence about him, and there was a twinkle of malice in his bold eyes as he stared at Scarlet, until finally, feeling his gaze, she looked toward him. Somewhere in her mind, the bell of recognition rang, but for the moment, she could not recall who he was. But he was the first man in months who had displayed any interest in her, and she threw him a gay smile. She made a little curtsy as he bowed, and then, as he straightened and started toward her with a peculiarity, <laughs> lithe Indian-like gait, her hand went to her mouth in horror, for she knew who he was. <laughs> Thunderstruck, she stood as if paralyzed, while he made his way through the crowd. Then she turned blindly, bent on flight into the refreshment rooms, but her skirt caught on the nail of the booth. She jerked furiously at it, tearing it, and in an instant she was beside herself. Permit me, he said, bending over and disentangling this fellows. I hardly hope that you would recall me, Miss Sahara. His voice was oddly pleasant to the ear, the well-modulated voice of a gentleman, resonant and overlaid with the flat, slow drawl of the Charlestonian. She looked up at him imploringly, her face crimson with the shame of their last meeting, and met two of the blackest eyes she had ever seen dancing merciless merriment. Of all the people in the world to turn up her hair, this terrible person who had witnessed that scene with Ashley, which still gave her nightmares, this odious wretch who ruined girls and was not received by nice people, this despicable man who had said, and with crude cause, that she was not a lady. At the sound of his voice, Melanie turned. For the first time in her life, Scarlet thanked God for the existence of her sister-in-law. Why, it's it's Miss, Mr. Rep Butler, isn't it? said Melanie. With a little smile, putting out her hand, I met you on the happy occasion of the announcement of your patrol. Patrol. Whoa. A bit 
engagement. <laughs> um, he finished bending over her, her hand. It is quite kind of you to recall me. And what have you are you doing to far so far from Charleston, Mr. Butler? A boring matter of business, Mrs. Wilkes, and I will be in and out of your town from now on. I find I must not only bring in goods, but see to the disposable of them. Bring in, began Melanie, her brow wrinkling, and then she broke into a delighted smile. Why, you, you must be the famous Captain Butler. We've been hearing so much about the blockade runner. Why, every girl here is wearing dresses you bought them. Scarlet, aren't you thrilled? What's the matter, dear? Are you faint? Do sit down. Scarlet sank to her stool, her breath coming so rapidly she feared the lacings of her stays would burst. Oh, what a terrible thing to happen. She had never thought to meet this man again. He picked up her black fan from the counter and began fanning her solicitously, too solicitously, his face grave, but his eyes were still dancing. It is quite warm in here, he said. No wonder Mrs. O- Miss O'Hara is faint. What? <laughs> May I lend you a window? I changed his accent. <laughs> no, said Scarlet, so rudely that Millie stared. She is not Miss O'Hara any longer, said Millie. She is Mrs. Hamilton. She is my sister now. And Millie bestowed one of her fond little glances at her. Scarlet felt that she would strangle at the expression on Captain Butler's worthy piratical face. I am sure that it is great gain to two charming ladies, he said he, making a slight bow. That was the kind of remark all men made, but when he said it, it seemed to her that he meant just the opposite. Your husband are here tonight, I trust, on this happy occasion. It would be a pleasure to renew acquaintances. My husband is in Virginia, said Millie, with a proud lift of her head. But Charles, her voice broke. He died in camp, said Scarlet flatly. She almost snapped the words. Would the creature never go away? Millie looked at her startled, and the captain made a gesture of self-reproach. My dear ladies, how could I? You must forgive me, but permit a stranger to offer the comfort of saying that to die for one's country is to live forever. Melanie smiled at him through sparkling tears while Scarlet felt the fox of wrath and impotent hate gnaw at at her vitals. Again, he had made a graceful remark, the kind of compliment any gentleman would pay under such circumstances, but he did not mean a word of it. He was jeering at her. He knew she hadn't loved Charles, and Melanie was just a big enough fool not to see through him. Oh, please, God, don't let anybody else see through him, she thought with a start of terror. Would he tell what he knew? Of course he wasn't a gentleman, and there was no telling what men would do when they weren't gentlemen. There was no standard to judge them by. She looked at him and saw that his mouth was pulled down at the corners in mock sympathy even while he swished the fan something in his look challenged her spirit and brought her strength back in a surge of dislike abruptly she snatched the fan from his hand i'm quite all right she said tartly there's no need to blow my hair out of place 
Scarlet, darling. Captain Butler, you must forgive her. She she isn't herself when she hears poor Charles' name spoken. And perhaps, after all, we shouldn't have come here tonight. We're still in mourning, and you see... And it's quite a strain on her, all this gaiety and music. Poor child. I quite understand, he said, with elaborate gravity. But... As he turned and gave Melanie a searching look that went to the bottom of her sweet worried eyes, his expression changed, reluctant respect and gentleman coming over his dark face. I think you're a courageous little lady, Mrs. Wilkes. Not a word about me, thought Scarlet indignantly, as Melanie smiled in confusion and answered. Dear me, no, Captain Butler. The hospital committee just had to have us with his this booth because at this last minute... A pillowcase? Here's a lovely one with a flag on it. She turned to three cavalry men who appeared at her counter. For a moment, Melanie thought how nice Captain Butler was. Then she wished that something more substantial than cheesecloth was between her skirt and the spittoon that stood just outside the booth. For the aim of the horseman with amber steam streams of tobacco juice was not so unnearing. Un- unearing as with their long horse pistols. Then she forgot about the captain, Scarlet, and the spittoons as more customers crowded to her. Scarlet sat quietly on the stool, fanning herself, not daring to look up, wishing Captain Butler back on the deck with his ship where he belonged. Your husband has been dead long. Oh yes, a long time, almost a year. Ah... An eon, I'm sure. Scarlet was not sure where an, what an eon was, but there was no mistaking the baiting quality of his voice, so she said nothing. Had you been married long? Forget, forgive my questions. We, but I have been away for this section for so long. Two months, said Scarlet unwillingly. A tragedy, no less. His easy voice continued. Oh, damn him, she thought violently. If he was any other man in the world, I could simply freeze up and order him off. But he knows about Ashley, and he knows I didn't love Charles, Charlie, and my hands are tied. She said nothing, still looking down at her fan. And this is your first social appearance? I know it looks quite odd, she explained rapidly. But the McLaren girls, who were to take... This booth were called away, and there was no one else, so Millie and I, no, sacri- no sacrifice too great for the cause. Why, that was what Mrs. Elson had said. But when he said it, it didn't sound the same way. Hot words started to her lips, but she choked them back. After all, she was here, not for the cause, but because she was tired of sitting home. I have always thought, he said reflectively, that the system of mourning of a mere women in crip for the rest of their lives and forbidding them normal enjoyment is just as barbarous as the Hindu city. Sati? He laughed, and she blushed for her ignorance. She hated people who used words unknown to her. In India, when a man dies, he is buried instead of buried, and his wife always climbs on the funeral pyre and is burned with him. How dreadful. Why do they do it? Don't the police do anything about it? Of course not. A wife 
who didn't burn himself, herself would be a social outcast. All the worthy Hindu matrons would talk about her for not behaving as a well-bred lady should, precisely as those worthy matrons in the corner would talk about you should you appear tonight in a red dress and lead a real personally. I think Sote, I don't much more merciful than our charming southern customs of burn widow's laugh. How dare you say I'm buried alive? How closely women clutch, clutch the very chains that bind them. You think the Hindu custom barbarous, but would you have had the courage to appear here tonight if the Confederacy hadn't needed you? Arguments of this character were always confusing to Scarlet. His was doubly confusing, because she had a vague idea there was truth in them, but now was the time to squelch him. Of course I wouldn't have come. It would have been, well, disrespectful to. It would have seemed as if I hadn't. His eyes waited on her words, cynical amusement in them, and she could not go on. He knew she hadn't loved Charlie, and he wouldn't let her pretend to to the nice, polite sentiments that she should express. What a terrible, terrible thing it was to have to do with a man who wasn't a gentleman. A gentleman always appeared to believe a lady, even when he knew she was lying. That was Southern Chalvoy. A gentleman always obeyed the rules and said the correct things and made life easier for a lady. But this man seemed not to care for rules and evidently enjoyed talking of things no one ever talked about. I am waiting breathlessly. I think you are horrid, she said helplessly, dropping her eyes. He leaned down across the counter until his mouth was near her ear and hissed in a very credible imitation of the stage villains who appeared frequently at the Anthem Hall. Fear not, fair lady. Your guilty secret is safe with me. Oh, she whispered furiously. How can you say such things? I only thought to ease your mind. Oh, I changed it. What would you have me say? Be mine, beautiful female, or I will reveal all. She met his eyes unwillingly and saw they were as teasing as a small boy's. Suddenly she laughed. It was such a silly situation after all. He laughed too, and so loudly that several of the chaperones in the corner looked their way. Observing how good a time Charles Hamilton's widow appeared. Crap. I lost my place. Appeared to be having with a perfect stranger. They put their heads together disapprovingly. There was a roll of drums, and many voices cried, shh, as Dr. Mead mounted the platform and spread out his arms for quiet. We must all give grateful thanks to the charming ladies whose indefatigable fatigable, and patriotic efforts have made this bazaar not only a pecuniary success, he began, but have transformed this rough hall into a bower of love, loveliness, a fit garden for the charming rosebuds I see about 
me. Everyone clapped approvingly. The ladies have given... The ladies have given their best, not only of the time, but of the labor of the hands, and these beautiful objects and the booths are dully beautiful, made as they are by the fair hands of our charming southern women. There were more shouts of approval, and Rhett Butler, who had been lounging negligently against the counter at Scarlet's side, whispered, Pompous goat, isn't he? Startled, at first horrified, at this list majesty toward Atlanta's most beloved citizen, she started, stared approvingly at him. But the doctor did look like a goat with his great chin whiskers wagging away at a great rate. And with difficulty, she stifled a giggle. <laughs> stifled a giggle. But these things are not enough. The good ladies of the hospital committee, whose cool hands have soothed many a suffering bro, bro, brow, and brought back from the jaws of death a brave man wounded in the bravest of all causes, nowhere needs. I will not enumerate them. We must have more money to buy medical supplies from England, but so successfully run the blockade for a year, and who will run it again to bring us a drugs, drugs we need. Captain Rep Butler! <laughs> Though caught unawares, the blockader made a graceful bow. Too graceful, thought Scarlet, trying to analyze it. It was almost as if he overdid his courtesy because his contempt for everybody present was so great. There was a loud burst of applause as he bowed and a craning of necks from the ladies in the corner. So that was who poor Charles Hamilton's widow was carrying on with. And Charlie hardly did a year. We need more gold, and I am asking you for it, the doctor continued. I'm asking a sacrifice, but a sacrifice so small compared with the sacrifices our gallant men in gray are making that it will seem laughably small. Ladies, I want your jewelry. I want your jewelry? No, the Confederacy wants your jewelry. The Confederacy calls for it, and I know no one will hold back to how fair a gem gleams on a lovely wrist. How beautifully gold brooches glitter on the bosoms of a patriarch woman. But how much more beautiful a sacrifice than all the gold and gems of the end. Of the end. The gold will be melted in the stone sold and the money used to buy drugs other medical supplies. Ladies, there will pass among you two of our gallant wounded with baskets and... But the rest of his speech was lost in the storm and tumult of clapping hands and cheering voices. Scarlet's first thought was one of deep thankfulness, and that morning forbade her wearing her precious ear bobs and the heavy gold chain that had been Grandma Robillard's and the gold and black enabled bracelets and the garnet brooch. She saw the little suave, a split oak basket over his unwounded arm making the rounds of the crowd on her side of the hall and saw a woman old and young laughing eager tugging at bracelets squealing in pretended pain as earrings came from pierced flesh helping each other undo stiff necklaces clasp unpinning brooches from bosoms there was a steady little clinking clink clink of metal on metal and cries of wait wait i've got it unfastened now there Mabel Mer 
Meriwether was pulling off her lovely twin bracelets from above and below her elbows. Fanny Ilsen, crying, Mama, may I? Was tearing from her curls the seed pearl ornament set in heavy gold, which had been the family for generations. As each offering went into the basket, there was applause and cheering. The grinning little man was coming to their booth now, his basket heavy on his arm, and as he passed Rhett Butler, a handsome gold cigar case was thrown carelessly into the basket. When he came to Scarlet and rested his basket upon the counter, she shook her head, th- throwing wide her hands to show that has she nothing to give. It was embarrassing to be the only person present who was giving nothing. Then she saw the bright gleam of her wide gold wedding ring. For a confused moment, she tried to remember Charles' face, how he had looked when he slipped into it on her finger. But the memory was blurred, blurred by the sudden fearing of an irritation that memory of him always brought to her. Charles, he was the reason why life was over for her, why she was an old woman. With a sudden wrench, she seized the ring, but it stuck. The silver was moving toward Melanie. Wait, cried Scarlet. I have something for you. The ring came off, and as she started to throw it into the basket, heaped up with chains, watches, rings, pins, and bracelets, she caught Rhett Butler's eye. His lips were twisted in a slight smile. Defiantly, she tossed the ring onto the top of the pile. Oh, my darling, whispered Millie, clutching her arm, her eyes blazing with love and pride. You brave, brave girl. Wait, please, wait, Lieutenant card i have something for you too she was tugging at her own wedding ring the ring scarlet news had never come once left that finger since ashley put it there scarlet knew as no one did how much it meant to her came off with difficulty and for a brief instant was clutched tightly in the small palm then it was laid gently on the pile of jewelry the two girls stood looking after the sew of who was moving toward the group of elderly ladies in the corner. Scarlet defiant, Melanie with a look more pitiful than tears. And neither expression was lost on the man who stood beside them. If you hadn't been brave enough to do it, I would never have been either, said Millie, putting her arm about Scarlet's waist and giving her a gentle squeeze. For a moment, Scarlet wanted to shake her off and cry, Name of God! at the top of her lungs, as Gerald did when he was irritated. But she thought she caught Rep Butler's eye and managed a very sour smile. It was annoying the way Millie always misconstrued her motives, but perhaps that was far preferable to having her suspect the truth. What a beautiful gesture, what a beautiful gesture, said Rep Butler softly. It is such sacrifices as yours that hearten our brave lads in gray. Hot words bubbled to her lips, and it was with difficulty that she checked them. There was mockery in everything he said. She disliked him heartily, lounging there against the booth, but there was something stimulating about him, something warm and vital and electric. All that was Irish in her rose to the challenge of his black eyes. She decided she was going to take this man down a notch or two. His knowledge of her secret gave him an advantage over her that was exasperating. So she would have to change that by putting him at a disadvantage somehow. She stifled her impulse to tell him exactly what she thought of him. 
Sugar always caught more flies than vinegar, as Mammy often said, and she was going to catch and subdue this fly so he could never again have her at his mercy. Thank you, she said sweetly, deliberately misunderstanding his jibe. A compliment like that coming from so famous a man as Captain Butler is appreciated. He threw back his head and laughed freely. Yelped was what Scarlet thought fiercely, her face becoming pink again. Why don't you say what you really think? He demanded, lowering his voice so that in the clatter and excitement of the collection came only to her ears. Why don't you say I'm a damned rascal and no gentleman and that I must take myself off or you're, you'll have one of those gallant boys in gray call me out? It was on the tip of her tongue to answer tardily, but she managed by heroic controls to say, Why, Captain Butler, how you do run on, and as if everybody didn't know how famous you are and how brave you and why, what, I am disappointed in you, he said. Disappointed? Yes, on the occasion of our first eventful meeting, I thought to myself that I had at last met a girl who was not only beautiful, but who had courage, and now I see that you are only beautiful. Do you mean to call me a coward? She said, ruffling like a hen. Exactly. You lack the courage to say what you really think. When I first met you, I thought, there is a girl in a million. She isn't like those, these older, silly little fools who believe everything their mamas tell them and act on it, no matter how they feel, and conceal all their feelings and desires and little heartbreaks behind a lot of sweet words. I thought, Miss O'Hara is a girl of rare spirit. She knows what she wants, and she doesn't mind speaking her mind or throwing vases. Oh, she said, rage breaking through. Then I'll speak my mind right this minute. If you had any raising at all, they, you'd never have come over here and talked to me. You'd have known I never wanted to lay eyes on you again. But you aren't a gentleman. You are just a nasty, ill-bred creature. And you think that because you're rotten little boats can outrun the Yankees, you're the right to come here, jeer at men who are brave and women who are sacrificing everything for the co- Stop, stop, he bid with a grin. You started off very nicely and said what you thought, but don't begin talking to me about the cause. I'm tired of hearing about it, and I'll bet you are too. Why, how did she began, caught off her balance, and then checked herself hastily, boiling with anger at herself for falling into her trap. I stood there in the doorway before you saw me, and I watched you, he said. And I watched the other girls, and they all looked as though their faces came at one mold. Yours didn't. You have an easy face to read. You didn't have your mind on your business, and I'll wager you weren't thinking about our cause over the hospital. It was all over your face that you wanted to dance, have a good time, and you couldn't. So you were mad clean through. Tell the truth, am I not right? I have nothing more to say to you, Captain Butler, she said as formally as she could, trying to draw the rags of her dignity about her. Just because you're conceited at being the great blockader doesn't give you the right to insult women. The great blockader, that's a joke. Pray give me only one moment more of her, your precious time before you cast me into darkness. 
I wouldn't want so charming a little patriot to be left under a misapprehension about my contribution to the Confederate cause. I don't care to listen to your brags. Blockading is a business with me, and I'm making money out of it. When I stop making money out of it, I'll quit. What do you think of that? I think you're a mercenary rascal, just like the Yankees. Exactly, he grinned. And the Yankees helped me make my money. Why, last month, I sailed my boat right into the New York Harbor and took on a cargo. What? cried Scarlet, interested and excited in spite of herself. Didn't they shell you? My poor innocent, of course not. There are plenty of sturdy Union patriots who are not averse to picking up money selling goods to the Confederacy. I run my boat into New York, buy from Yankee firms, sub Rosa, of course, and away I go. And then that gets a bit dangerous. I go to Nassau, where th- these same Union patriots have brought powder and shells and hoop skirts for me. It's more convenient than going to England. Sometimes it's a bit difficult running into Charleston or Wilmington, but you'd be surprised how far a little gold goes. Oh, I knew Yankees were vile, but I didn't know. Why quibble about the Yankees earning an honest penny selling out the Union? It won't matter in a hundred years. The result will be the same. They know the Confederacy will be licked eventually, so they why shouldn't they cash in on it? Licked us? Of course. Will you please leave me, or will it be necessary for me to call my carriage and go home to get rid of you? A red-hot little rebel, he said, with another sudden grin. He bowed and sauntered off, leaving her with her bosom heaving with impotent rage and indignation. There was disappointment burning in her that she could not quite analyze. The disappointment of a child seeing illusions crumble. How dared to take the glamour from the blockaders? How dare he say the Confederacy would be licked? He should be shot for that, shot like a traitor. She looked about the hall and the familiar faces, so assured of success, so brave, so devoted, and somehow a cold little chill set in the heart. Licked? These people? Why, of course not. The very idea was impossible. Disloyal. What were you two whispering about? asked Melanie, turning to Scarlet as her customers rushed off. I couldn't help seeing that Mrs. Merriweather had her eye on you all the time, and dear, you know how she talks. Oh, the man's impossible, an ill-bred boar, said Scarlet, and as for old Lady Merriweather, let her talk. I'm sick of acting like a ninny just for her benefit. Why, Scarlet, cried Melanie, scandalized. Shah, shah, <laughs> sorry, shh, shh, said Scarlet. Dick Demid is going to make another announcement. The gathering quieted again as the doctor raised his voice. At first in thanks to the ladies who had so willingly given their jewelry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I am going to propose a promise. An in- innovation that may shock some of you. But I ask you to remember that all this is done for the hospital, for the benefit of our boys lying there. Everyone edged forward in anticipation, trying to imagine that the sedate doctor could propose he would be shocking. That would be shocking. The dancing is about to begin, and the first number will, of course, be a real flower by a waltz. The dance is following the polkas, the school, scutitious, and mus- 
circus <laughs> will be preceded by short reels. I know the gentle rivalry to lead the reels very well, and so the doctor mopped his brow and asked a quizzical glance at the scent corner where his wife sat among the chaperones. Gentlemen, if you wish to lead a reel with a lady of your choice, you must bargain for her. I will be auctioneer, and the proceeds will go to the hospital. Fan stopped in mid-swish, and a ripple of excited murmuring ran through the hall. The chaperone's corner was in tumult, and Mrs. Mead, anxious to support her husband in an action of which she disheartedly disapproved, was at a disadvantage. Mrs. Elsing, Mrs. Merriweather, and Mrs. Whitman were red with indignation. But suddenly the home guard gave a cheer and was taken up by the other ununiformed guest. The young girls clapped their hands and jumped excitedly. Don't you think it's it's just just a little like a slave auction? Whispered Melanie, staring uncertainly at the embattled doctor who heretofore had been perfect in her eyes. Scarlet said nothing, but her eyes glittered and her heart contracted with a little pain. If only she were not a widow. If only she were Scarlet O'Hare again. Out there on the floor in an apple green dress with dark green velvet ribbons dangling from her bosom, bosom and tube roses in her black hair, she'd lead that reel. Yes, indeed. There'd be a dozen men battling for her and paying over money to the doctor. Oh, to have to sit here a wallflower against her will and see Fanny and Maybelle lead the first reel as the bell of Atlanta. Above the tumult sounded the voice of the little Suave, his cruel accent very obvious. If I may, twenty dollars for Miss Maybelle Merriweather. I mean, okay. Uh, Maybelle collapsed with blushes against... Fanny's shoulder, and the two girls had their faces in each other's necks and giggled. As other voices began calling other names, other amounts of money, Dr. Mead had begun to smile again, ignoring completely the indignant whispers that came from the ladies' hospital committee in the corner. At first, Mrs. Merriweather had stated flatly and loudly that her Maybelle would never take part in such a proceeding, but as Maybelle's name was called most often and the amount went up to $75, her protest began to dwindle. Scarlet leaned her elbows on the counter and almost glared at the excited laughing crowd surging about the platform, the hands full of Confederate paper money. Now they would all dance except for, except for her and the old ladies. Now everyone would have a good time except her. She saw Rhett Butler standing just below the doctor and before she could change the expression of her face, he saw her, and one corner of his mouth went down and one eyebrow went up. She jerked her chin up and turned away from him, and suddenly she heard her own name called, called in an unmistakable Charleston voice that rang out above the hubbub of other names. Mrs. Charles Hamilton, $150 in gold. A sudden hush fell on the crowd, both of the mention of the sum and at the name. Scarlet was so startled she could not even move. She remained sitting with her chin in her hands, her eyes wide with astonishment. Everybody turned to look at her. She saw the doctor lean down from the platform and whisper something to Rhett Butler, probably telling him she was in mourning 
and it was impossible for her to appear on the floor. She saw Rhett's shoulders shrug lazily. Another one of our bells, perhaps? Questioned the doctor. No, said Rhett, clearly his eyes sweeping the crowd carelessly. Mrs. Hamilton. I tell you it is impossible, said the doctor testily. Mrs. Hamilton will not. Scarlet heard a voice which, at first, she did not recognize as her own. Yes, I will. She leaped to her feet, her heart hammering so wildly she feared she could not stand, hammering with the thrill of being the center of attention again, of being the most highly desired girl present, and, oh, best of all, at the prospect of dancing again. Oh, I don't care. I don't care what they say, she whispered as a sweet madness swept over her. She tossed her head and sped out of the booth, tapping her heels like castanets, snapping open her black silk fan to the widest. For a fleeting instant, she saw Melanie's incredulous face, the look on the chaperone faces, the petulant girls, the enthusiastic approval of the soldiers. Then she was on the floor, and Rhett Butler was advancing toward her through the aisle of the crowd, that nasty, mocking smile on his face. But she didn't care. Didn't care if it was Abe Lincoln himself. He was going to dance. She was going to dance again. She was going to lead the reel. She swept him a low curtsy and dazzling smile, and he bowed, one hand on his frilled bosom. Okay. Levy, horrified, was quick to cover the situation involved. Choose your partners for the Fergany Reel. And the orchestra crashed into the best of all real tunes, Dixie. How dare you make me so conspicuous, Captain Butler? But, my dear Mrs. Hamilton, you so obviously wanted to be conspicuous. How would you call my name out in front of everybody? You could have refused, but I owe it to the cause. I, I couldn't think of myself. When you were offering so much in gold, stop laughing. Everyone is looking at us. They would look at us anyway. Don't try to palm off that twaddle about the cause to me. You wanted to dance, and I gave you the opportunity. This march is the first figure of the reel, isn't it? Yes, really. I must stop and sit down now. Why? Have I stepped on your feet? No, but they'll talk about me. Do you really care, down in your heart? Well, you aren't committing any crime, are you? Why not dance the waltz with me? But if mother ever... Still tied to mama's up? Apron strings. Oh, you have the nastiest way of making... Virtues sound so stupid, but virtues are stupid. Do you care if people talk? No, but, well, let's don't talk about it. Thank goodness the waltz is beginning. Reels always leave me breathless. Don't dodge any questions. Has what other women said ever mattered to you? Oh, if you're going to pin me down, no. But a girl is supposed to mind. Tonight, though, I don't care. Bravo. Now you are beginning to think for yourself instead of letting others think for you. That's the beginning of wisdom. Oh, but when you've been talked about as much as I have, you'll realize how little it matters. Just think, there's not a home in Charleston where I am received. Not even my contribution to our just and holy cause lifts the ban. How dreadful. Oh, not at all. Until you've lost your reputation... You never realize what a burden it was or what freedom really is. You do talk scandalous. 
scandalously and truly, always providing you have enough courage or money you can do without a reputation. Money can't buy everything. Someone must have told you that. You'd never think of such a platitude all by yourself. What can it buy? Oh, well, I don't know. Not happiness or love, anyway. Generally, it can. And when it can't, it can buy some of the most remarkable substitutes. And what have you... And what have you so much money, Captain Butler? What an ill-bred question, Mrs. Hamilton. I'm surprised. But yes, for a young man cut off without a shilling in early youth, I've done very well. And I'm sure I'm clean up a million on the blockade. Oh, no. Oh, yes. What most people don't seem to realize is that there is just as much money to be made out of the wreckage of the civilization as from the un- upbuilding of one. And what does all that mean? Your family and my family and everyone here tonight made their money out of changing wilderness into civilization. That's empire building. There's good money in empire building, but there's money in empire wrecking. What empire are you talking about? This empire we're living in, the South, the Confederacy, the Cotton Kingdom, is breaking up right under our feet. Only most fools won't see it and take advantage of the situation completed by the collapse. I'm making my fortune out of the wreckage. Then you really think we're going to be lit? Yes. Why be an ostrich? Oh dear. It bores me to talk about such like. Don't you ever say pretty things, Captain Butler? Would it please you if I said your eyes were twin golden goldfish bowls filled to the brim with the clearest green water and that when the fish swim to the top as they are doing now, you are devilishly charming. Oh, I don't like that. Isn't that music gorgeous? Oh, I could waltz forever. I didn't know I had missed it so. You are the most beautiful dancer I've ever held in my arms. Captain Butler, you must not hold me so tightly. Everybody is looking. If no one were looking, would you care? Captain Butler, you forget yourself. Not for a minute. Now, how could I? With you in my arms? What is that tune? Isn't it new? Yes, isn't it divine? It's something we captured from the Yankees. What's the name of it? When the cruel, this cruel roll is, war is over. What are the words? Sing them to me. Uh, dearest one, do you remember when the last didn't meet? When you told me how you loved me? I don't know. I wish they had, like, music. Kneeling at my feet... Oh, how proud you stood before me in your suit of gray when you vowed for me a country never to go astray, weeping sad and lonely, sighs and tears all vain when this cruel war is over, fray that we meet again. Probably is fun faster than. Of course, it was suit of blue, but we changed it to gray. Oh, you waltz so well, Captain Butler. Most big men don't, you know. And to think it will be years and years before I'll dance again. It will only be a few minutes. I'm going to bid you in for the next reel, and the next, and the next. Oh, no, I couldn't. You mustn't. My reputation will be ruined. It's in shredders already. So what does another dance matter? Maybe I'll give you, give the other boys a chance after I've had five or six but I must have the last one. Oh, all right. I know I'm crazy, but I don't care. 
I don't care a bit what anybody says. I'm so tired of sitting at home and I'm going to dance and dance and not wear black. I loathe funeral crepe. Oh, I couldn't take off mourning, Captain Butler. You must not hold me so tightly. I will be mad at you if you do. And you look gorgeous when you're mad. I'll squeeze you again there just to see if you will really get mad. You have no idea how charming you were that day at Twelve Oaks when you were mad and throwing things. Oh, please, won't you forget that? No, it is one of my most priceless memories. A delicately nurtured southern belle with her Irish up. You are very Irish, you know. Oh, dear. There's the end of the music, and there's Aunt Pity Pat coming out of the back room. I know Mrs. Merriweather must have told her. Oh, for goodness sakes, let's walk over and look out the window. I don't want her to catch me now. Her eyes are as big as saucers.